2: Welcome to Living Free on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and with my show co-hosts, we'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge that this land was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. Each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the many programs that assist in recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. My guest today is an alcoholic who's recovered with the help of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'd like to welcome Laura to the show. Hi Laura.
0: Hi, nice to be here.
2: Uh, So Laura, the format of the show is we usually talk about growing up and how you got into alcohol and the sort of things that influenced your life and influenced the direction it took so we'd like to talk about sort of early life family life and the things that you you think are important in your journey
0: I would love to start there because the truth is, is as far back as I can remember since a little kid, you know, I really identify with being restless, irritable discontent. And that's something that I learned through AA of, you know, I've always been that way. I was an angry child, which I think is pretty funny to say out loud. Uh, everyone would just, you know, identify me as an angry child. I have, I have little girls, you know, and they kind of like vomit rainbows everywhere they go. They truly are like a joy to be around. And I just didn't identify with them when they were little. I didn't understand just being okay. Um, Because I that isn't that isn't who I was. I feel like there was always some disconnect within me um, and other people just my whole life. I was restless, irritable discontent. But when I'm looking at like my parents and stuff, I was raised by a single mom. But she loved me. She loved me a lot. And she saw that there was something going on with me from an early age. And she did the best she could, which was put me in a lot of therapy. So, you know, I've been doing doing therapy since I was six.
2: And <laughs> so do you want to talk about the, why why you think that happened?
0: Well, it's all in hindsight today yeah, why I think that yeah, happened. Yeah, you yeah. know, why I think that happened is because I was suffering from alcoholism. I believe the way that I read Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, is that, that it's something I was born with and that it's progressive. So I believe somebody like me was just disconnected from birth and the way that it manifested in me was a progressive illness that started out as me simply being a a restless irritable discontent child and and as a parent of a now alcoholic person i could spot it in him when he was five as well and i go oh no oh look at that Mm So that's not everybody's understanding of alcoholism. Um, That is the way that I read it throughout the big book, which is the program that I try to be an accurate representation of. So AA does not have the same um, definition of alcoholism uh, universally throughout the universe. I sponsor a lot of drug and alcohol counselors, a lot of a lot of therapists and a psychologist, actually. And I asked I asked them, what is your criteria for alcoholism? And it's wildly different than the AA big book version. Yeah. So all I have to talk about is that way. Yeah. But for me, yeah, I was restless, irritable, discontent my entire life. I yeah. just was unhappy. So do
2: you want to talk about your parents, grandparents, the things that may have influenced that? Was there anything, any, uh, I guess, isms or addictions in Previous generations.
0: Um, my dad and his identical twin brother are both. Um, my dad was a gambling addict. His twin brother is an alcoholic, in and out of AA today. Um, and my mother didn't have addiction on her side of the family, and actually, I don't. I don't identify anyone on my mother's side of the family of having addiction. As far as like the medical definition of alcoholism, I absolutely believe it's something hereditary. I, it, But I would have seen it through my father's side. Absolutely. Um, yeah, my dad was an identical twin, but he didn't, and a an alco- uh, gambler, but he didn't raise me. So that's one of the things that it's kind of like, it kind of looks at me like it's a hereditary thing. And, and where it came from, I don't know that it's necessarily important where it came from, except that I understand that I have it right yeah. yeah understand what it is and understand that i have it
2: yeah so, I, I guess from coming from my day was an alcoholic so coming from an alcoholic background i and being in alan and family groups i i now understand that alcoholic families breed alcoholics mm. and therefore anybody who tries to control the family is creating that ism if mm. you like yeah, so it's yeah.
0: well, it it says it it says it a lot throughout the the book that our families are often neurotic but that usually we have something to do with that chaos and if yeah. if you're born into that and that's how you're raised um and then for me I was born into a single parent household with a really loving mom who did the best that she could you know that's why the the trauma model the therapy model doesn't work for my situation and really why the big book model of alcoholism was so appealing to me because Um, they're, you know, in my experience now, I've been sponsoring other women for a really long time, hundreds of women, and I hear the truth. I hear these stories. You know, we have really intimate relationships as sponsor-sponsor relationships, and I, I hear their lives. And we have been through, some alcoholic people have been through incredible, horrific things, but I didn't necessarily have that experience. I had a really lovely mom, you know, who put herself through university and worked nights. So doing the best she could i lived in a you know a really decent yep. experience as my childhood with somebody who loved me a lot you know and who cared about me a lot and yeah but it it seemed like as far back my earliest memories i was discontent i just yeah. wasn't a happy kid yeah.
2: yeah so what were your relationships like at school
0: so there's another thing you hear in AA a lot that I don't identify with it, which is I never felt like I fit in. I have a really gregarious personality. And actually, I fit in a lot of places. I actually am kind of popular and people, people want to like me. And and I'll bring that up later in the story. as well. <laughs> people really wanted to like me. And in my younger years, I always was very drawn to individuality, very drawn to doing exactly what I wanted to do. Yeah. And in hindsight, I really see it was very drawn to getting my immediate needs met. And that kind of carries on as well, that really, it was a very selfish, self-centered life. But in the beginning, um, yeah, I was actually pretty likable and got along well with other people. I kind of enjoyed other people, but I can see now it was very selfish and self-centered that I'd put people in my life in order to make me feel a certain way, even from when I was really young.
2: Yeah. So did you have close friends or just a lot of friends?
0: It's a really good question. I think I always clung to one person. And so I did have like a best friend. I don't know why. I think socially in my mind that I just decided that was what you do. And then I did that. There was a lot of like chameleon deciding who I was supposed to be and then helping, you know, creating a life around that. And what that looked like in in hindsight, again, man, recovery, the whole thing is hindsight, Hmm. growth, all of it, hindsight. Um, But looking back, it was very much like deciding who I liked and then changing myself to become those people. Mm. And what I think it's really cute, you know, when I finally recovered, and I, I had the same best friend th- for a very long time, and she saw me get well. And, you know, I came back to her after sobriety And I was like, you know, she said, Do you want to go camping? And I said, Oh, oh, I think I hate camping. And she goes, What are you talking about? we We used <laughs> to go camping all the time, you know, and then she'd say, Oh, let's go to a punk show. And I'm like, I think I actually hate that music. Like I didn't really know who I was. I would just find the people that I like and then emulate them my whole life. And I don't know that that's necessarily alcoholic, but I know that um, it was my struggle to connect with people in any way. In hindsight, that's what I did. Yeah. I think
2: think we call it people pleasing. Oh, yeah, Yeah. definitely.
0: Trying to fit in. Yeah. 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 Being there. So I was able to fit in, but it was it was very disingenuous. It wasn't an authentic representation of who and what I was, because to be fair, I had no idea who I was. Yeah. No idea.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's sort of tragic, but that that's the way it is. Uh, mm. Yeah, yeah. Um so then uh leaving school, mm. what happened?
0: So I started doing drugs and alcohol really early. Yeah. Um so you know, going into that restless, irritable, discontent feeling since a child, I didn't actually like being that person. So people would call me mean as like a cute little green eyed <laughs> seven year old, like I was a mean little kid. And I didn't like to feel that way. Um, so as soon as I found things that I could do to change the way that I felt internally, mm. I would start doing that. So like, now, pretty radical things today looking at it, I started smoking cigarettes when I was 11 years old. And again, like I own a 12 year old and she is still playing with slime. She's not out behind, you know, stealing cigarettes, (laughs) but that changed the way that I felt inside just for Mm -hmm. a moment. It changed the way that I felt. Um, And, uh, very early on, you know, I was doing actually pretty hard drugs in middle school and anything that people gave me or presented to me or that I could find to make me feel different, because again, I didn't like being restless, irritable discontent, all the solutions that my mom and therapy offered didn't work. Um, it was a lot of pinpointing what happened as a child, but then no solution to that. Like, oh, these tragic things happen, but then What? Um, there wasn't a solution there. So what was a solution? What was a really good solution was drugs. Yeah. <laughs> was alcohol. Was boys. Was attention. You know, yeah. it made me feel happy, joyous, and free. And isn't that actually the human condition? What we're striving for: being happy, joyous, and free. So, yeah. um, how far did I even make it? And in... so in high school, um, I became really belligerent and um, didn't do very well. But again, in I can see in hindsight, I. I didn't have future projection. I didn't have goals. I didn't have some aspirations. Really, my life was just trying to get my immediate needs mm. met in any way that I could do that. So really a focus on joy and pleasure uh, instead of aspirations and ambitions. You know, that just wasn't me. So mm. joy and pleasure was really the driving force in my life.
2: Yeah. So what's, what was your alcohol use like at that time?
0: So the way that I understand alcoholism, again, is just the big book description. And so um, I was at a place where I loved to drink and I drank a lot, but it was a more controlled situation to where we would just drink a lot on weekends. Um, That's kind of where it started, was drinking a lot once in a while, um, and then when I was 18 years old, it was my senior year in high school, um, my mother abruptly passed away. So she was my only parent, but she had abruptly passed away. And I remember that day I started to drink uh, circumstantially. So what I mean was I was so sad because of the circumstance that I started to drink alcohol circumstantially to make myself feel better with alcohol. And so that was different than drinking for fun, right? Which I was doing with my friends. Um, And I saw from there that it really did change the way that I felt that I was restless, irritable discontent when I was sober and alcohol- Turned me to be happy, joyous and free, regardless of the circumstance, regardless of what was going on. It actually really did work for a long time to make me feel better.
2: Yeah. So it's also a dangerous thing, drinking alcohol. So did you address the risk?
0: Absolutely not. Absolutely not. And again, looking back, you know, um, I couldn't use consequences as a deterrent to stop drinking. And that was really shocking because I'm not an idiot. I'm not a dumb woman. You know, yeah. I'm actually pretty bright. Yeah. And so I was 18 all by myself. Uh, we're in America, so we yeah. couldn't legally drink, but you can still drink, obviously. Yeah. Um, and the situations that I started putting myself were uh, t- terrifying looking yeah. back. Yeah. Um Looking back, it was uh, this really baffling knowledge of I could scan the room and see who might hurt me, how I couldn't get home if I drank too much, uh, how I wouldn't have a way home, how I couldn't drive home, how um, somebody was looking at me threateningly, like I could see uh, this, the circumstances I was in every time I'd go out and and try to get my immediate needs met, be happy, joyous, and free, and surround myself with more shady people uh, who were also drinking too much alcohol a lot of the time. Yet the circumstances of the con or the consequences weren't enough to deter me from drinking alcohol. There was mm-hmm. there was no consequence, including even to the the next morning waking up, something horrific would have happened. And gone, oh, that never would have happened if I would have drank, if I wouldn't have drank. And then all of a sudden, strangely thinking about how I could drink later on that evening. Mm. That's the, That was the complete baffling disconnect. And, and all that did was progressively get worse over time. Never better. There were a couple times when I could rein it in for a couple weeks, but it progressively over time got worse and worse and worse. So the consequence of the, as of the actions got worse. Uh, mm. The things that I lost got worse. My desire to control it got bigger. The necessity to quit drinking was there for over a decade. But the desire to quit drinking never came.
2: Mm. No
0: matter, regardless of the consequences, you know. Yeah. Which is kind of terrifying.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it is terrifying. So what was your... I guess your living experience at that time how were you supporting yourself and doing this drinking
0: So this is really important I think I'm a strong ass independent woman I'm really capable of a lot of things and that's why this inability to control the alcohol was so baffling to me I um put myself through school like I said my mom died at 18 And I didn't even see that as really a hurdle. I just jumped out. I I supported a 16 year old brother. Like I just jumped into life. You know, put myself through school, became a hairdresser. That's something I always wanted to do. Visually, you can look at me and go, Oh, yeah, that makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I started doing hair and uh, really was able to support myself because what I see now is alcoholism isn't actually a character flaw. It's not actually. um, It really has nothing to do with my ability to achieve things in the world uh it's just this part of me that didn't allow me to 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 not stay so you know i couldn't stay sober so at the beginning again my alcoholism progressed so what that looks like is the amount of alcohol i drank progressed over time but the days in between whether or not i was going to drink got smaller and smaller and smaller as well over time so when i was in my 18 to 25 phase Um, I was able to support myself actually did very well supporting myself I was very independent and and was able to both hit the amount of alcohol I wanted to drink and get to work the next day there was this little sweet spot of being able to be as drunk as I wanted to and still go to work every day and still pay the bills so it wasn't fancy but it was good enough for me and there was a little tiny uh, moment through the progression of alcoholism that I was okay you know it was
2: yeah that's good. Listen, we might take a quick break. Um, we've got a song. This one's Are You Old Enough by Dragon.
1: and support Radical Radio. Call 03 8377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward subscribe. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law.
2: Tune in to Done By Law.
1: An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law. 6pm Tuesdays.
2: Welcome back. Uh, This is the Living Free Show on 3CR. 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you'd like to listen to one of our many podcasts, you can find us on your preferred podcast platform or just Google 3CR Living Free and check out our website. You can also contact us via phone, email or Twitter. Uh, Today I'm talking with Laura about alcoholism and her recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, So Laura, before the break, we are talking about being in your late uh, 20s teens early 20s and drinking more alcohol supporting yourself having life pretty much under control Mm -hmm. Um, most alcoholics that I know are what we call fully functioning alcoholics Mm -hmm. and that's the fully functioning side of it so Mm -hmm. how did your life progress after that
0: Right. So there was that time where I hit this little sweet spot where I could drink as much as I wanted to drink, but I don't know how long that lasted. It may have only been two weeks, you know, might've been two (laughs) months, but it wasn't that long. But I go, oh, look, I can drink the exact number of drinks I want, maintain my goal weight, make it to work. You know, I thought this was fully functioning alcoholic and um, that didn't last very long. Now, what did happen is I met my now husband and um, I had, that happiness kept me under control for a couple months as well. So there was these circumstantial things that happened where like being in love kept me from going absolutely downhill. But that didn't last very long either. So um, what happened is that things got exponentially worse, uh, and very, very quickly. So I, I, I'd like to touch on like, At 26, what it looked like was um, I started drinking in the mornings. I started drinking um, throughout the day. And what happened in my mind was kind of more like a justification, not on purpose. So throughout the day, no matter what was happening, I'd seem to just have this thought like, oh, You should have a drink, even though I had things to do later where if I knew it, if I took a drink, I wasn't going to make it to that thing. Things I wanted to do, like go to work or to, you know, later in life, it looked like having a kid who had a sports game at four o'clock, knowing I wanted to go to the sports game, knowing if I picked up a drink, I couldn't make it there. And then looking down, all of a sudden I was drunk again. And it was really unclear to me um, what was happening in my mind between uh, waking up, having a day planned, and then looking down and having a drink in my hand, even when I knew that I shouldn't. So life became really dangerous right before I met my now partner. Um, Because I was single and my drinking became more and more and more, regardless of the day, regardless of the circumstance, I would drink too much when I didn't want to when I was happy. I was drinking too much on a great day. I was also drinking too much on a bad day or when I was sad. It didn't seem like the circumstance mattered. It seemed like every day I'd wake up with a firm resolution not to drink that day because I had X, Y, and Z on. I knew if I drank, I wouldn't make this date later, you know, if I picked up a drink now, I wouldn't make it to a friend's baby shower. If I picked up a drink, I wouldn't make it to work. And yet I was drinking again. So during my 20s, I I started becoming really baffled by my own behavior and my own drinking, but nobody had given me a reason. And a lot of my family and friends didn't really understand what I was doing either. So I began to lose people in my life who truly loved me and even my, you know, long term best friend who is now my friend again, but Um, she would start saying things like I viewed people as disposable and that always stuck with me, you know, (laughs) like I would put people in positions in my life to make me feel better. And as soon as they failed at making me feel better, that would happen a lot with dating a lot with, um, relationships. As soon as the people, uh, I put into my life to make me feel good, failed at keeping that up because Mm. it was impossible. You know, I, um, I would remove them very quickly from my life and move on to the next person. That's when the real selfishness and self-centeredness started, you know, that real trying to get my needs met in whatever way possible, yeah. even though it was sometimes really dangerous and even illegal.
2: Yeah. So do you want to talk a bit about your relationship with your uh, person who's now your husband, um, mm-hmm. how that progressed with your drinking?
0: So it's interesting. Um I have to just to for the story to make sense I actually uh went to an AA meeting the first time right before I met him And I didn't do anything. I just went there and looked around and I really liked the atmosphere. It was um, a a friend that I was drinking with in the morning. A sister wrote him an email and was like, oh, there's an AA meeting up the road at noon. So we got really drunk and went to the AA meeting because I thought that's what she did. And, um, you know, I I didn't want anything that I didn't want to be there. And the truth is, is I was not ready to quit drinking. Um, But I went to the AA meeting and I heard someone say, don't get in a relationship in your first year. And about 48 hours later, I went on a blind date with my husband, right? <laughs> and he walked out of his apartment. And I go, oh, that's my husband. And we're married 50. I did. I knew it was him. You know, he walked out. I'm like, oh, he's so good looking. Thank you. Like right on. This is my husband. And then I go, oh, AA told me not to date. So no, thank you. I'm out of here. So that was my little dabble. And I didn't do anything there. I just, you know, heard not to date. So I met this man who I was obsessively in love with, and things got a little bit better. But he enjoyed drinking alcohol. So this Mm. is an important part of my story. We Mm. had a good time, you know, Um, I would drink every day because our life kind of allowed that. And in the evenings, he'd often join me. So I had this person who drank a lot with me and that was okay. I I drank because, and I was happy about it, but I remember the night before our wedding, one of the most baffling things happened to me, which was that I knew that if I drank tonight, I'd be hungover for my wedding and I desperately did not want to be hungover at my wedding. Like I hated being hungover. And I would t- the whole day I told myself, "Don't you dare drink! Don't drink tonight, because you'll be hungover tomorrow. Don't drink tonight. Don't drink tonight." And then all of a sudden my mind changed, and I'm on a beach before my wedding drinking, <sighs> and I woke up just defeated. That I was so happy, I was so excited to get married. I love this man more than I love myself. I'm gushing with excitement. And I woke up hungover, you know, I set my own bar and I failed my own bar. And that's when it really started hitting me that like I, I seem to be drinking against my will. And I couldn't articulate that, mm. but I could see that there was something different about my drinking because it's like I didn't want to drink that day. And then I did. And that was really sad to me. Mm. <laughs> so my relationship with him at the beginning was good. Um but what I see now is that I I started becoming really confusing. He would come home from work some days and I would be happy. I would be sexy. I would have dinner on the table and the kids would be fed and you know I'd hand him a beer. I was really the wife that I wanted to be and then all of a sudden the next day he would show up. He'd open the same door to the same house and nothing would have changed except me. And I'm in rage and I'm screaming and I'm yelling and and for some reason I made it his fault. I was so confused as to why I was ha- unhappy, and he had given me this beautiful life that i st- that I turned on him that it must be he was the problem, and this beautiful man started thinking maybe he was you know it says <laughs> that you know he goes what? Well, maybe I am the problem. So I would tell my husband to change and he would. And I still wouldn't be happy. I don't know if you have any experience with that. (laughs) It's
2: called called transferring the guilt,
0: yes. (laughs) So I would say, you know, why why don't you help out more with the kids and I'll be happy? And then he would and I'd be like, no, not like that. And why don't you make more money and I'll be happy? So he'd get a new job and I'd be like, no, now you're gone all the time. And why don't you spend more time with me? Now we don't have any money. And it was like my crazy just thrown onto him because I had nowhere else to put it and him trying to make me better. He loved me, you know, he loved me.
2: to make me. you happy, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And he would do the things that I requested and I would still be unhappy. And then alcohol worked that night as well, you know, so back to alcohol. And for many, many years, alcohol turned me from being restless, irritable, discontent when I was sober to happy, joyous and free. And it worked. It worked until sometimes it started not working. And that's when I was restless, irritable, discontent when I was drunk. And those bad days when he'd come in the door became more and more and more. And those good, happy, you know, flirty, sexy, come home to your hot wife days become less and less and less and less. Yeah. And that was the progression for me. It's yeah. slowly over time got worse.
2: Yeah. So what about having kids and drinking? Don't Saddest talk about that.
0: thing ever. Yes. Again, because I didn't do any of this on purpose. I um I love those kids and what what happened is the first one came and I be, became um a stay-at-home parent and the drinking really progressed when uh by the grace of God I was able to stay sober just through pregnancy but as soon as um my child was born I started making excuses how I could drink and started um what I call as alcoholic math is doing things like um, how much can I drink and still breastfeed and what that would do. And, yep. and started, to, it's called alcoholic math in my head, you yeah. know, how much alcohol, how much per serve. And then unfortunately, you know, by the, I said, just by the grace of God, I didn't drink pregnant, but absolutely while I was breastfeeding. I did. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. I remember we had a guest on the show who was talking, who, would get up to breastfeed, would open a bottle of champagne, mm-hmm. would breast, breastfeed while drinking champagne. <laughs>
0: absolutely. Absolutely. I did it. And yeah. and again, I wanted to be an amazing mom. Like the, the kid had nothing but organic food and I had no BPAs and I was doing all these things trying to be this really great mom. Yet here I am drinking alcohol as I'm breastfeeding my baby. Like I knew this wasn't the best thing for him. Yet it's like I couldn't not do this. And yeah. again, that was shocking that I knew knew I wanted to be a good mom. Um, And this got this got worse every child. Um, The truth is, by the third child, I was so unsafe around my children that we had a full time live in nanny. And I kind of dressed that up as like, oh, I'm just very fancy. I get to have live in help. But my husband and I both knew it was because the kids needed somebody safe to be around them because I wasn't safe. And it wasn't that I didn't love them. But the end of my drinking was parenting from the end of my bed. People had to bring me my kids to the bed because I couldn't get out because I was so sick. And I would love them and kiss them and take from them and send them away with presents and trips to the zoo with someone else. So it was really sad. That's you tragic. know, it's really yeah. sad what happens. Yeah.
2: So what caused you to go to AA again?
0: Uh, complete desperation and despair. And I say that with such a big smile on my face. But I say that because, um, with love and hoping to be of service to other people with family in AA, my partner knows that he didn't get me to AA. That purely the own despair of my own life, how baffled I was by my own behavior. Um, I had a moment of clarity. Mm -hmm. Which came after is what we call it. It came after the worst day of my life. Um, So things had gotten so bad in Australia. um, I, I came up with a bright idea. Maybe we should go back to America because, you know, maybe I'll be happy there. Um, and I, 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 on the flight home, I actually made my first promises. I said to him, I said, I'm going to be so different. I'm going to be a great neighbor. Cause for some reason, me and my neighbor has always fought. I was like there, I'm going to be the, sh- the sugar neighbor. They're going to borrow sugar from me. I'm going to have the neighborhood kids in my house. I had a great plan about the new woman I was going to be when we got back to America. And I wasn't going to drink in America cause this new Laura was, was going to be there. And, um, It was the very first day that I got back. The very first day I became so drunk that I don't I don't know everything that happened, but I know I physically assaulted my husband while he was holding the baby and the police arrested me in front of the kids and it was like I see my daughter's two year old face with their big blue eyes screaming as the police are taking me away, you know? And I'm like, look at that. This is not what I, what my own bar, that was the point. It was always my own bar that I was setting for myself and not able to get over my own bar. Nobody else was forcing me. So the next day I woke up again, another day, exhausted, embarrassed, devastated, knew that if my husband opened the door, he shouldn't, knew that it was alcohol for the first time. I go, Oh, Oh, it's alcohol and knew from my first experience in AA that that this time we need to try again, but actually try like I need to actually attempt to get sober. And my oldest was eight at the time. And I got on my knees to look at him in the face. And I said, "Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna be gone a lot because I have to stop drinking. And he said, "Um, I'd rather you be gone all the time than drunk all the time. And that was really um, upsetting. But what it did is gave me permission to leave the house. Moms have this mother's guilt, completely irrational, that I can't leave the house. And um, he gave me the permission to go to AAA and actually try Alcoholics Anonymous this time.
2: Yeah, right. Okay. that's good. <laughs> awesome. We'll take another break. Um, and this one, this song uh, I've got queued up is called Don't Fall in Love uh, by the Ferrets. <laughs>
0: don't have a million dollars and still want to have a good education for your kid tune into the dogs program we are the defenders of government schools 12 p.m on saturdays here on 3cr 855 and am dial podcast streaming live on 3cr.org.au and 3cr digital we defend government schools because they need it
2: This is The Living Free Show on 3CR Digital Radio, live streaming on 3cr.org.au, and we're talking with Laura about alcoholism and her recovery through Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, so Laura, we, we finished the last segment talking about where alcohol took you and the fact that you finally decided that alcohol was the problem. Um, so what happened next?
0: This is my favorite part to talk about because it actually turns out well in the (laughs) end. So I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous crawling in on my hands and knees, really, because there was nowhere else to go. Um, in America, rehab's about $60,000, you know, bare minimum. And so it wasn't something on offer. But I remember just that short time, couple days in AA, thinking that that might work if when I'm ready. So I came back in crawling on my hands and knees. And um, there was only six people in the room. And I remember it was men for men and women for women. And the only other woman there was about 85 years old. and she. Had had a bum bag and little round glasses. And I go, well, I guess I'm just gonna die. You know, I was not (laughs) impressed. And I remember I just burst into tears. I started crying. And um everyone was sharing around the room and then the the little lady started sharing about how she used to, you know, smuggle heroin and I go what is this place you know my ears perked up and I was like oh my goodness maybe she's not going to just point and judge me so she immediately after the meeting I accosted her and I said I need you to tell me how to get sober I didn't realize she didn't work there you know and um <laughs> She sat down after the meeting and she started, she opened up the big book and she started reading it with me just right there at the table. And I now realized everyone probably wanted to go home, but we stuck around for about two hours and some guys made tea and it was a small meeting and they gave me a big book and she read the big book with me until I quit crying, which was about two hours later, and I went home and I kept reading. And it got to a part of the book where it talks about this alcoholic insanity. And I was like, this, this is what I have. This is this is what's going on with me. And so she met me the next day um, at a meeting again. And um, it was a bigger meeting. And this woman walked in the room and she was young and she was beautiful. And she had a job and a career, you know, like she looked so normal. And 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 she was smiling and she was laughing and she was hugging people. And um, I I found it really uh, off-putting almost because that wasn't who I was. I was angry and dying of alcoholism. And um, she put, uh, uh, everyone begun to share and someone stupidly asked me to share. And I kind of yelled at everybody, to be honest. I said, you know, I'm dying when someone going to tell me how to stop drinking. And, uh, again, I thought everyone worked at AA and she gave me a little business card with her number on it. And it said, if you want someone to take you through your steps, I will do that. And I was like, how dare you? <laughs> <laughs> the audacity. But she seemed like she was really confident and armed with some facts about herself. And maybe she knew something I didn't. Mm. So I called her that night and she came over the next day and she started taking me through the big book and the 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My second day of sobriety, which I understand most people don't do. Um, But I was sold AA as a very quick process and I sell it today for fun and for free, of course, you know, (laughs) a quick process. And the reason I am passionate about that is because I was in so much pain. I was in so much pain when I was sober sitting in those meetings. And then I knew I was in so much pain now drinking that there was no hope for me. There was no solution. I'm restless, irritable, discontent drunk, restless, irritable, discontent sober. There there was no hope. And um, she offered me this idea. And um, the very first day, she explained to me what alcoholism is the way the big book describes it. And that's not necessarily the way that the medical community describes it. Um, She read the words phenomenon or craving out of the big book. And I didn't realize that non-alcoholics don't have this feeling. And what it's described as is when I as an alcoholic start drinking, I can't comfortably stop. I can't stop at my Mm -hmm. drink number. I was 34 years old. Nobody had ever Mm. mentioned that maybe when I start drinking, I can't comfortably stop drinking and that that little physical feature is progressive. And it made so first time in my whole life anything ever made sense about my drinking and why I couldn't stop when I wanted to. I accidentally Mm. got drunk all the time. Accidentally got too drunk. That's why I have a thing. I have a physical illness. I didn't know until this woman. And with that word of understanding the physical part of alcoholism, I decided to be quiet and go ahead with the rest of the program because this woman who I didn't really know or like seemed to know something that I didn't, which was Mm. alcoholism. So then she described the second feature of alcoholism, which again, I had no idea that I have a mental illness around alcohol, I have a I have a compulsion to drink alcohol, um, regardless of the circumstance and regardless of um, the necessity not to, there's a tradition three that says the requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. And I had a necessity to stop drinking for a decade, but I didn't have the desire until I did. And that came at a really, really downhill, you know, I pretty low bottom, crawling on my hands and knees type of situation. But when it came, it came and I became willing to do a bunch of stuff I didn't want to do, which was I, I only didn't like 12 of the steps, you know, yeah. I didn't love them. <laughs>
2: <laughs> so what about the desire to drink? When did that leave you?
0: So I, I am just 12 step. Alcoholic. So so interestingly enough, it left exactly when it says so in the book, which is at the end of step five. It says that you may have a, your desire to drink be removed from you. Mm. Um, and I'm really grateful I did the steps pretty quickly. So I got there within a couple weeks. Um, the desire to stop drinking left and I only saw it in hindsight again. I was so busy with AA. I went to a meeting every single day, immediately got a service position. I got really big into the fellowship while doing the steps, uh, which look like, uh, in America, it's really fun. It's a little bit more fun than it is here. We have biker rallies and poker tournaments and all yeah. kinds of good AA stuff. But it's the same, all over. the steps are the same no matter where we are. But I did a bunch of busy work while I did the steps. And um, so I, I, I almost didn't notice. At the end of step five, something had begun to be different about me. And I began to not wake up thinking about alcohol, not wake up one day at a time, white knuckling, not drinking. All of a sudden, I was waking up and then had all these things to do and a whole day to attend to and a service position at AA. And then I could start coming home and doing things like making dinner for the first time again, or cleaning for the first time after a really long time, Mm -hmm. or being with my kids or talking to my husband, these little tiny normal human behaviors that they they weren't on offer for me at the end of my drinking i I wasn't a good person i wasn't good mom i wasn't good wife Mm. i was really sick i was really sick
2: i think a lot of it comes down to accepting yourself that that's what i am Mm. that's what i've got to work with Mm. and yeah
0: yeah, get on with getting on with it yeah right and so one day at a time through the steps like through the process I incrementally got a little bit better and a little bit better. And, you know, I could barely get out of bed for the first month. I'm not going to say that it was easy. It was actually the hardest early recovery. That was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life was to recover. Being really gentle on myself. And this first month, you know, I'm just going to make it to a meeting every day. And then about a weekend, I'm just going to make it a meeting and do laundry. You know, it was really incremental, um, until I start start got to the amends process. Um I got to the amends process and went out and really did repair the damage that I'd done in the past, which most of it was to my husband and mm. to my children. Yeah. And that, um, for a mom, a lot of the women that I work with, mm. in hindsight, I know today that um, it pro- there's a promise that my ugly past is my wor- is my greatest asset today, and I do know that to be true because, mm. you know, if you're too afraid to come to Alcoholics Anonymous because you're going to be judged as a mom, you drank, you drove drunk, drove with your kids in the car. Like I'm here to hold your hand because so did I. Mm. That's who I was as a person, and that was my best try. I gave it my all, and I loved my. Kids, you know, I put them in really bad situations. I abused my husband. I wasn't just mean, Mm -hmm. I was abusive. um, And I had a lot to look at. So when I went up to go clean these things up, first of all, I was shocked at the forgiveness. You know, I was shocked. People, I went out to clean up the wreckage of my whole past. Um, I repaid the money. One of those financial amends I thought was 500 bucks turned out to be $8,000. That's a good story for another time. But, you know, I did these things and truly found out who and what I was, who I didn't know before. You know, I was trying to be this person to get you to like me, but I didn't know who the heck I was. And after doing this amends process, it was this great unraveling of fear as well. I could walk into a room and not be afraid that I hurt anybody Mm -hmm. there. I walked into a room and I know how to communicate with other human beings. Mm -hmm. I knew how to take responsibility for myself and my whole life. And things were drastically different. Mm -hmm. My husband instantly forgave me, which I still, that is grace. My -hmm. kids instantly forgave me grace again, you know, but I had to get honest about who I was and what I did do, which was a lot, you Mm -hmm. know
2: yeah and a lot of that step nine stuff is just not repeating that stuff ever in future mm-hmm. you know, that's the i guess from a family of an alcoholic there's there's not much you know we hurt the alcoholic as well um and our step nine is not not repeating that we can't undo it
0: mm-hmm.
2: there's no there's nothing to pay back because we doled it out <laughs>
0: Right, um,
2: and so it's just Committing to not do it again, you yeah. know, to let them live their life. Yeah. So.
0: Yeah. And I desperately, by that point, wanted to be different. Like, I didn't want the life that I had before. And Alcoholics Anonymous had revealed itself to me over the step process where it yeah. builds on itself. And all of a sudden, this has been revealed to me that there's a different way to live. You know, we call it clear-cut instructions uh, of, of how to live your life effectively, no longer being restless, irritable, discontent all the time, sober. Sober was my problem. Alcohol worked to fix it for a while. To, it didn't.
1: And then I'm
0: just yeah. sober and have a problem. And AA's, you know, instructions for living. I don't have that problem sober anymore. Therefore, I don't drink anymore. And yeah. it's truly a miracle. You know, it's truly a miracle what's happened to
2: yeah. my so life. So, do you want to talk about your life now?
0: It's amazing. <laughs> it's, You know, there's no moral, there's no spiritual high top. It means I've never arrived. I'm not some perfect person. I still do abhorrently ridiculous things. However, when I'm sober, I'm happy, joyous, and free most of the time. I have repaired my relationship. We we are now more married more years uh, sober than I was drunk yep. and um, yeah. yeah that's a good one and uh, I have a real present relationship with my children uh, that I keep messing up and fixing it and they keep loving me regardless and um, we're walking really beautifully as a family I have a lot of hope today that I could actually be a halfway decent mom halfway decent wife halfway decent fe- friend and today I have a purpose in the world I'm no longer just here to take from you um, Alcoholics Anonymous mm-hmm. has giving me a way to be of service as my primary purpose I have a purpose today and that's pretty amazing that's Mm. a gift it's a gift to have a purpose
2: so what about the challenges in life
0: uh they are always it says this is a design for living that works in rough going well when is it rough going sometimes always sometimes a lot you know I revealed to you I had a, a child struggling with addiction and you know almost got a divorce last year Nothing has, I've never needed anything other than 10, 11, and 12 and AA to get me through every single obstacle in life. It has never failed for me. And that's why I'm so passionate about AA. I've remained willing to work Alcoholics Anonymous. Therefore, I have kept getting the promises over and over and over. AA has worked for me a hundred percent of the time, but now I have these instructions of how to get there, how to be okay when life is rough, because life still is rough. Yeah. I really, I really thought that this entire psychic change or like a spiritual awakening was going to be, be, I become psychic and life is great all the time. Neither of those things happened, you know, mm. but I do know how to survive in rough going today. And it's only with Alcoholics Anonymous. Absolutely. Mm.
2: So what's your life like? living today?
0: I sponsor a lot of people. I mm. do know that that's my primary purpose is to stay sober and help other alcoholics achieve sobriety. And I just do that on the big book. I probably meet with a sponsee. I probably have at least seven a week. <laughs> so I do something AA related every single day and that's service. Um, I go to an AA meeting one or two a week uh, where I am in the service structure of AA. Um, I work at every area of service and I, um, And I try to be of service to my family today. Most of my life is uh, external. I find out selfishness and self-centeredness is the root of my problem. So the key to happiness is actually serve others to look at how I could be happy to other people. And um, yeah, I'm present for my kids. I do AA almost every day in some form of serve. And um, yeah, I have successful businesses and all kinds of cool stuff that came as a result of a side effect of the work of AA. So the cash and prizes weren't all the cool stuff, even though I have those today. The cash and prizes of all the hard work was being able to live comfortably sober. And I definitely am comfortably sober today. That's good, isn't it? (laughs) It it
2: is. And I guess that's the thing. It it means that you feel relaxed with yourself regardless of Mm. what you're doing. You don't have to do or not do it's yeah life life becomes quite easy yeah
0: i don't know if it's because of my age or recovery but I am truly at peace with myself and I know who I am. I'm comfortable in my skin, my body, and am unapologetically authentic today because I do know who I am. I don't need to chameleon into who you need me to be because I'm confident in me today. And I yeah. think that's a wild promise to give to some. That's a wild cash and prize to to get as a result of this stuff, you know, to be yeah. okay with who you are.
2: Yeah. It's that acceptance of self. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're just relaxed you don't have to be anybody for any for no. someone else yeah. No, yeah
0: it's
2: good one one face yeah. <laughs> it's a good okay one. okay um if anybody would like to find out more about alcoholics anonymous uh you can phone them in australia on 1300 three hundred triple two triple two, or jump online at aa.org.au for more information on recovery um that's about all we've got time for today uh so i'd like to thank laura for sharing her alcoholism recovery story with us and talking about how alcoholics anonymous has helped her in her recovery thank you
0: thanks for having me
2: now you also mentioned you had a podcast you want to just give a quick
0: i'd love to it's uh that's not in the book podcast so we just talk about aa in the big book it's really good time anywhere that podcasts are available
2: okay thank you I hope you'll be able to join us again next week when we'll be talking with Demetra, a member of Eleanor and Family Groups, about the impact of someone else's alcoholism on their life. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more Radical Radio on 3CR.
0: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia.